Good morning, Four Corners Church. Praise God for another opportunity to look out and see your faces and for all of us to see the faces of one another really is a great gift from the Lord and I pray that you see it that way today. If you would, go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Exodus 36 verse 8 to 39 verse 43. Yes, you heard that correctly. This is by far, by far the most text that I have ever taken on during a sermon, but this really is a unique situation. I've just never come to anything like this uh, in the passages and books that we have preached. Here in these chapters, we have the details of the tabernacle repeated. So we have repeated material that we have already, or material here that we have looked at before. Back in chapter 25, verse 10, to chapter 30, verse 8, we got the instructions for the tabernacle given from God to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so uh, maybe you were here for that. You remember going through those portions. Maybe you've come in at some point uh, since then or through that. Uh, Maybe this is your first Sunday with us. So we went through chapter 25, verse 10, to chapter 30, verse 8. And there we looked at each part in detail as uh, we dissected the tabernacle, going through all of the different sections, the materials, the placement, the function, and the meaning and significance of each aspect of the tabernacle and the priestly garments. And so you can go back there and look at those different sections As we looked at those in those chapters. Today we come to the construction itself. And this goes, uh, well, chapter 25 verse 10 through 30 verse 8 is instruction. And then chapter 36 verse 8 to 39 43 is construction. So we have instruction and construction. We're now in the latter part. So that is the reason why we are taking on all of this in one sermon. So we got a detailed treatment there and then a flyover here in these four chapters. And this actually affords us an opportunity to do something that we're not really used to. Something new for us and that is to have an extended public reading of Scripture. We already have the public reading of Scripture. We take this very seriously as a church Uh, And it is built into our service. And this happens in two major ways. Of course, our effort, our our desire is that uh, we would put Scripture throughout the entire service. From the call to worship, the confession of sin, all the way to the end. But we have two aspects of our service where there is this public reading of Scripture. One of those is what Ken did before. And that is the parallel passage each week. We select a passage that goes along with the sermon text, and that is read publicly. And then there is the sermon passage, which is also read. And for both of these, we stand. This is our typical practice. As as Ken asked you earlier to stand, we stand for the reading of God's Word there. And when we come to uh, our passage for our sermon. And over the years, as we've gone through various books, especially going through Genesis and Exodus, we have grown accustomed to sometimes reading larger chunks of Scripture. Uh, And as we went through Genesis, I think especially when we got out of the creation narrative, we would typically take on an entire chapter. And so the way Genesis is structured, we would move through and do a chapter each Sunday. Well, today we are going to read four chapters. Not one, but four. However, I do want to say this. I am going to ask you to remain seated. So it is not typically our practice uh, to remain seated. But I'm going to ask you as we come to this portion to remain seated as we read the scripture. Uh, I want to make sure that we reverence God's word. I also want to have a consideration for God's people. And so for these four chapters this morning... I would ask you not to stand as we read. And also, uh, as we remain seated, it helps us to be able to focus on building the tabernacle together. So what I don't want you doing is focusing on, okay, how much longer? Uh, I don't want you standing up thinking about when you're going to be able to sit down. Uh, I don't want 
to say, uh, stand if you wish, and then you're sort of thinking, do I, do I, do I go ahead and sit down, or uh, my, my kids are here with me. I don't, I don't want any of those thoughts running through your mind. I just want everyone to focus on what we're going to read, because we're going to build the tabernacle together as we go through this passage. And as we read, I will have the slide that we use for each part of the tabernacle. It will come up on the screen and so as we read, as we listen, we'll also have this, this picture to guide us, which is a reconstruction. We need to recognize that what we're going to see on the slides, as I said before, when we were going through all of these various sections, what, what we're going to see on the slides uh, is a probable reconstruction. They all come from the ESV study Bible, so uh, from the same source, and this is, uh, this is what scholars consider is the most likely way that this object would have looked. Those will come up on the screen as we come to each section. And I would ask you, this actually is a unique opportunity to get the whole thing in view at one time. I mean, maybe even in your Bible reading plan, you you read three chapters and, and you would just cut some of this off. But this gives us an opportunity to take this whole thing in. We took it in piecemeal before, and now today we're going to take it in as one big whole. So let me also say something about reading large chunks. Uh, This has been, throughout the history of the church, a very typical practice of God's people. So what we're about to do in reading a large chunk of Scripture may seem very odd, but it is not odd when you put it in the context of the history of God's people, in the Old Covenant and in the New. So we see it throughout the Old Testament with Moses, for example. We've already seen this in Exodus 24, 7. Or with Joshua in Joshua chapter 8, verses 34 to 35. Or with Josiah in 2 Kings 23, 2. And probably the most famous example of this marathon reading, which I would not call what we're going to do today a marathon reading, but probably the most famous example is with Ezra in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 to 8, where the people, they they gathered together from morning until midday and they read the entire Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All of that as God's people gathered. So we get it in the Old Testament throughout, and those are just some examples, but we also get it in the New Testament. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, to devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And so we know that it would have been very typical for Timothy receiving that instruction from Paul and in other churches to read these large chunks of the Old Testament, of course, When Paul writes that to Timothy, he means the Old Testament. Those were the scriptures that God's people had. And in Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul refers to the believers there reading his letter letter out loud together, which would have been typical for all of Paul's letters. So when the church in Rome received Paul's letter, they would not have said, today we're going to read chapters 1 to 4. Tomorrow we're going to read chapters 5 to 8, and then we'll take 9 through 11 the week after that. They would not have done that. They would have read all of Paul's letter, and of course they would have studied it and they would have gone through it. But when they received it, they would have read the entire letter, all 16 chapters at once. So all of that is just meant to really buffer us and prepare us for what we are about to do, which is unique, is something we haven't done before. So if you'll go ahead and open up your Bibles, if you haven't already, Exodus 36, 8, please do remain seated. I, I'm, I'm grateful that there's a strong impulse now in, in many to stand, and that is a good thing, and that is our typical practice. But for this today, I would ask you to remain seated. We're going to read Exodus 36, 8 to 39, 43. And as I said before, uh, you can blend together, reading along, listening, and looking up at the slide as we come to that portion. This is, by God's grace, his precious word. And it is to fully equip us, 
and make us ready for every good work. Exodus 36, beginning in verse 8. And all the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains. So here we have the tent. They were made of fine twine linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns with cherubim skillfully worked. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains were the same size. He coupled five curtains to one another and the other five curtains he, may, he coupled to one another. And of course, uh, the Bezalel is overseeing all of this and he's been mentioned before. He made loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain of the first set. Likewise, he made them on the edge of the outermost curtain of the second set. He made 50 loops on the one curtain. And he made 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that was in the second set. The loops were opposite one another. And he made 50 clasps of gold and coupled the curtains one to the other with clasps. So the tabernacle was a single hole. He also made curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. He made 11 curtains. The length of each curtain was 30 cubits and the breadth of each curtain 4 cubits. The 11 curtains were the same size. He coupled five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. And he made 50 loops on the edge of the outermost curtain of the one set. And 50 loops on the edge of the other connecting curtain. And he made 50 clasps of bronze to couple the tent together that it might be a single whole. And he made for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and goat skins. Then he made the upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits was the length of a frame, and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. Each frame had two tenons for fitting together. He did this for all the frames of the tabernacle. The frames for the tabernacle he made thus. Twenty frames for the south side. And he made 40 bases of silver under the 20 frames, two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. For the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, he made 20 frames and their 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame and two bases under the next frame. For the rear of the tabernacle, westward, he made six frames. He made two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear, and they were separate beneath but joined at the top at the first ring. He made two of them this way for the two corners. There were eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases under every frame, two bases. He made bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the tabernacle at the rear westward. And he made the middle bar to run from end to end halfway up the frames. And he overlaid the frames with gold and made their rings of gold for holders for the bars and overlaid the bars with gold. He made the veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen with cherubim skillfully worked into it. He made it. And for it, he made four pillars of acacia overlaid and overlaid them with gold. Their hooks were of gold and he cast for them four bases of silver. He also made a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, embroidered with needlework, and its five pillars with their hooks. He overlaid their capitals, and their fillets were of gold, but their five bases were of bronze. So there we have the tent, and hopefully you can see here uh, what is a very good reconstruction of what we have there, very carefully done. Uh, But this is the actual tabernacle itself, the dwelling place of God. Next, we come to the ark with its mercy seat. Chapter 37, verse 1. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold for its four feet. Two rings on its one side and two rings on its other side. And he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. And put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark. And he made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And he made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. 
of one piece with the mercy seat, he made the carabim on its two ends. The carabim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces one to another toward the mercy seat were the faces of the carabim. The place where Aaron would sprinkle the blood once a year on the Day of Atonement. A picture there of Eden with the carabim. As we find in Genesis chapter 3, this is the throne of God. This is the dwelling place, the core, the center of the tabernacle. Then we come in verse 10 to the table. The table of the bread of the presence. The bread is not mentioned here because we're dealing with construction. But this is the table where the bread would be placed inside of the holy place. Verse 10. He also made the table of acacia wood. Two cubits was its length. A cubit its breadth. A cubit is 18 inches, by the way. And a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold and made a molding of gold around it. And he made a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, and made a molding of gold around the rim. He cast for it four rings of gold and fastened the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame were the rings as holders for the poles to carry the table. He made the poles of acacia wood to carry the table and overlaid them with gold. And he made the vessels of pure gold that were to be on the table, its plates and dishes for incense, and its bowls and flagons with which to pour drink offerings. Then in verse 17, we get the lampstand. Uh, This is the uh, object on the opposite side of the, uh, on the south side. The north side has the table. The south side has the uh, lampstand, also known as the menorah. You can see an incredible picture of this or engraving of this on the Arch of Titus in the Forum in Rome, uh, which commemorates Titus's destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD when he carried out the objects. He destroyed the temple uh, and carried out the objects. And you can see an engraving from that time, uh, commissioned by Titus, uh, commemorating that battle on the Arch of Titus. Of course, that was from the temple, and what we're getting here is from the tabernacle. Verse 17 He also made the lampstand of pure gold. He made the lampstand of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers were of one piece with it. And there were six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch, So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself were four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out of it. Their calyxes and their branches were of one piece with it. The whole of it was a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. And he made its seven lamps and its tongs and its trays of pure gold. He made it and all its utensils out of a talent of pure gold. So now we come to the altar of incense with verse 25. This is also in the holy place, uh, which is the first section of the tent of meeting, the first section of the tabernacle. Uh, and it has the, the table on the north side, the menorah on the south side, and then this altar of incense. Verse 25. He made the altar of incense of acacia wood. Its length was a cubit and its breadth was a a cubit. It was square and two cubits was its height. Its horns were of one piece with it. He overlaid it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And he made a molding of gold around it. And he made two rings of gold on it under its molding on two opposite sides of it as holders for the poles with which to carry it. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. He made the holy anointing oil also and the pure fragrant incense blended as by the perfumer. Here we get a very condensed version of that from the previous portion. Also, I want to draw attention to these rings and poles. And it just reminds us that the tabernacle is a portable structure. Later, there will be the temple, but this is a portable structure for the Israelites as they are moving through the wilderness. They've come out of Egypt and it's just a reminder that God is moving with the people. And the tabernacle is going to be torn down and built up, torn down and built up as the Israelites move. 
In chapter 38, verse 1, we come to the altar of burnt offering. He made the altar of burnt offering, also known as the bronze altar, of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length and five cubits its breadth. It was square and three cubits was its height. He made horns for it on its four corners. Its horns were of one piece with it and he overlaid it with bronze. And he made all the utensils of the altar, the pots, the shovels, the basins, the forks, and the fire pans. He made all its utensils of bronze. And he made for the altar a grating, a network of bronze under its ledge extending halfway down. He cast four rings on the four corners of the bronze grating as holders for the poles. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. And he put the poles through the rings on the sides of the altar to carry it with them. He made it hollow with boards. So now we come to a very brief description of the bronze altar. And you can put up, uh, Keith, the, uh, I'm sorry, of the bronze basin. You can put up the picture. This is what the ESV Study Bible puts out there as a picture for what was in the temple. We don't have much description uh, to, for what was in the tabernacle. It's mentioned very briefly before and here as well uh, in terms of what it looks like. But here we have uh, a reconstruction of what it would have looked like later in the temple. So at least that gives you an idea of uh, what they were working with later. This is described very briefly in verse 8. He made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. And so here, pictured women, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 22 mentions uh, the women ministering there, uh, cleaning, taking care of things, we assume, uh, cleaning up from what the Levites and the priests were actively doing. Uh, We read of Eli's sons lying with these women and the wickedness that was involved in that. And of course, the Lord curses Eli and his house. So uh, this is probably connected to that as you have here ministering women mentioned and they give up their mirrors of bronze to be used. These are precious items to be used for this bronze basin. Then we come to the court in verse 9. And he made the court for the south side. The hangings of the court were of fine twined linen. A hundred cubits, their twenty pillars and their twenty bases were of bronze. But the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. And for the north side there were hangings of a hundred cubits. Their twenty pillars, their twenty bases were of bronze. But the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. And for the west side were hangings of fifty cubits. Their ten pillars and their ten bases. The hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. And for the front to the east, 50 cubits. So the east is where the entrance is. The tabernacle itself is in the west. So you move east as you go out of the tabernacle. You move west as you come into it. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Verse 14, the hangings for one side of the gate were 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. And so for the other side, on both sides of the gate of the court were hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three bases. All the hangings around the court were of fine twined linen and the bases for the pillars were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. The overlaying of their capitals was also of silver and all the pillars of the court were filleted with silver. And the screen for the gate of the court was embroidered with needlework in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It was 20 cubits long and five cubits high in its breadth, corresponding to the hangings of the court. And their pillars were four in number, their four bases were of bronze, their hooks of silver, and the overlaying of their capitals and their fillets of silver, and all the pegs for the tabernacle and for the court all around were of bronze. And you can go ahead, Keith, and just keep that up. As we come now to the materials for the tabernacle, we have this mentioned here at this place before going to the garments of the high priest and the other garments. So verse 21, these are the records of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony, as they were recorded at the commandment of Moses. By the way, the reference to the tabernacle as the tabernacle of the testimony draws attention to the centrality of the covenant. And the tablets of stone upon which the covenant is written. The tabernacle is known as the tabernacle of the testimony. Once again, the reason why it was essential that in building the tabernacle, they not abandon the covenant sign, which was the Sabbath. The tabernacle is an expression of the relationship they have with the Lord through the covenant. 
So it is the tabernacle of the testimony, as they recorded at the commandment of Moses, the responsibility of the Levites under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. Verse 22. Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord commanded Moses. And with him was Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach, of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer and embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. You can see the different colors there in the picture. All the gold that was used for the work in all the construction of the sanctuary, the gold from the offering, was 29 talents and 730 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. The silver from those of the congregation who were recorded was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. A becca ahead, and you can see uh, there should be notes in your Bible to let you know all of uh, what these approximate to in terms of measurement. Verse 26, a becca ahead, that is half a shekel by the shekel of the sanctuary. For everyone who was listed in the records from 20 years old and upward for 603,550 men. Once again, a reminder of the massive amount of people whom the Lord saves from slavery in Egypt. He brings out around 2 million or more people, 603,550 of which are men. Verse 27, and of course we don't know how many women and children, just assume based on average size of a family and so forth, uh, the approximation is 2 million or a little more. Verse 27, the hundred talents of silver were for casting the bases of the sanctuary and the bases of the veil. A hundred bases for the hundred talents, a talent a base, and of the 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars and overlaid their capitals and made fillets for them. The bronze that was offered was 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. With it, he made the bases for the entrance of the tent of meeting, the bronze altar and the bronze grating for it, and all the utensils of the altar. The bases around the court and the bases of the gate of the court, all the pegs of the tabernacle and all the pegs around the court. So now we come to the final stretch. Uh, you guys have done really well. No one's, I haven't seen anyone uh, fall over. So chapter 39 Verse 1, we come to the priestly garments. And of course, at the center of the priestly garments is the high priestly garments. Chapter 39, verse 1. From the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place. They made the holy garments for Aaron, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made the aphod of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. And they hammered out gold leaf, and he cut it into threads to work into the blue and purple and scarlet yarns and into the fine twined linen in skilled design. This, this uh, would have really popped. You can imagine looking at Aaron in his high priestly garments and how impressive it would have been with these, this gold leaf woven together with this blue and purple and scarlet yarn, a beautiful garment. And it would have drawn attention, of course, to the significance of his role as high priest. It is done in skilled design. And then we see verse 4. They made for the aphod attaching shoulder pieces, joining to it at its two edges, and the skillfully woven, woven band on it was of one piece with it, and made like it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen, as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made the onyx stones enclosed in settings of gold filigree and engraved like the engravings of a signet, according to the names of the sons of Israel. Remember, there are 12 stones, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, one for each of the 12 sons of Jacob. And then all the names are written, six on one side and six on the other, on those stones on the shoulders. So both in his front, both on his heart and on his shoulders, the high priest would have worn the nation, as it were, representing the people. Verse 7, and he set them on the shoulder pieces of the aphod to be stones of remembrance for the, stones, for the sons of Israel as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made the breastpiece and skilled work in the style of the aphod of gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It was square. They made the breastpiece doubled, a spanned its length and a spanned its breadth when doubled. And they set in it four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz and carbuncle was the first row. And the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. 
In the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. Yes, I did have to look up how to read, uh, how to pronounce some of these stones. Verse 13, in the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They were enclosed in settings of gold filigree. There were 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They were like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. And they made on the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold. And they made two settings of gold filigree and two gold rings. And put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. And they put the two cords of gold and the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. They attached the two ends of the two cords to the two settings of filigree. Thus they attached it in front to the shoulder pieces of the aphode. Then they made two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece on its side edge, on its inside edge next to the aphode. And they made two rings of gold and attached them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the aphode at its seam above the skillfully woven band of the aphode. And they bound the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the aphode with a lace of blue so that it should lie on the skillfully woven band of the aphode. And that the breastpiece should not come loose from the aphode as the Lord had commanded Moses. He also made the robe of the aphode woven all of blue. And the opening of the robe in it was like the opening in a garment. With a binding around the opening so that it might not tear. On the hem of the robe they made pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. They also made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates all around the hem of the robe between the pomegranates. The people would be able to hear the high priest inside doing his service unto the Lord and on their behalf. Verse 26, a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe for ministering as the Lord had commanded Moses. They also made the coats woven of fine linen for Aaron and his sons and the turban of Fine linen and the caps of fine linen and the linen garments of fine twined linen and the sash of fine twined linen and of blue and purple and scarlet yarns embroidered with needlework as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote on it an inscription. You can see the plate there. Like the engraving of a signet and it read holy to Yahweh, holy to the Lord. And they tied to it a cord of blue to fasten it on the turban above as the Lord had commanded Moses. Thus, all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. And the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases, the covering of the tent. Ram skins and goat skins and the veil of the screen, the ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat, the table with all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand of pure gold and its lamps with the lamps set and all its utensils and the oil for the light, the golden altar, the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen for the entrance of the tent. The bronze altar and its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand. The hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court, its cords and its pegs, and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle for the tent of meeting. The finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So the people of Israel had done all the work, and Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded So they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. So now let's bow our heads to the Lord. Let's pray and ask for his blessing over our time as as we begin to understand hopefully more deeply what we have here in in this large chunk. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for these chapters Lord, we're we're grateful to be able in one sitting to see this glorious tabernacle that you commanded on the mountain according to the pattern, your perfect pattern, Lord, uh, encapsulating so many truths of redemptive history and of even the new heaven and the new earth, going back to Eden and going forward to a full consummation of your saving purposes through Christ. God, we thank you for all the imagery here and all uh, of th- that this teaches us, Lord. And we pray now that you would guide us as we uh, do a flyover, as we go through this material, Lord, that uh, it would stick in our minds and that it would edify us. We pray for your grace in Jesus' name.
Amen. So as the tabernacle is constructed, there are four key things that we need to take note of. And so these are the sermon points this morning. Uh, If you want to write these down, four key things that we need to take note of. And as I've said, we've gone through each of those things in detail. But four things that I want to take note of this morning in this flyover. Here they are. The overarching holiness, the obedient work, the overseeing leaders, and the ongoing relationship. I think as we take in the whole, we need to, at the very least, walk away with these four moving parts. So let's look at each of them. So first, the overarching holiness. One of the great themes of the tabernacle is holiness. This is a topic that we have talked about repeatedly over the last several months. And uh, it's a word that has come up over and over and over again. God is holy, unique, set apart. He is pure and perfect. He is the creator and we are the creatures. He's the infinite creator and we are finite creatures made from the dust of the earth. Even more, he is perfect and just and we are sinners. So it should not surprise us that the theme of God's holiness dominates the tabernacle sections, both sections, the instructions and the construction. The tabernacle is about God's presence. That's the big idea, God's presence. But more specifically, it is about the holy God dwelling with his sinful people. It is not merely about God being with his people, It is about God being with his people as the holy God among sinners. This is God's house among a sinful people. And so here we get the tabernacle constructed. And in the next chapter, the last chapter, we get the tabernacle erected. And this all happens after the golden calf. God is dwelling with his sinful people illustrated by The golden calf. This is God's grace and God's mercy that he would be that holy and yet that present. We should never take that for granted. That a God this holy is this present. We see this theme here in a handful of big ways. This theme of Holiness, the overarching holiness. We see it in a handful of big ways. So let me go through these. And I have five things here. And there's others. But these are five big ways that we see the theme of holiness here as we fly over the tabernacle. First, there is the repetition itself. The fact that so much material is given to the tabernacle and that it is repeated in this way. All these chapters within Exodus, all this word count, Devoted to the tabernacle, it sets the tabernacle apart as special. It shows its significance. It is holy and therefore deserving of so much time and energy and space. Second, you have the enclosure itself. So if you could put back up uh, for us, Keith, the, um, the, whole, the whole structure with the court The enclosure itself, it it denotes separation. The people, the camp is out there. The tent of God is in here. So those fine twined linen strips, going curtains, going all the way around, remind the people that there's something in there and there's a separation from that and where they are. This is brought more home for us by these veils or screens. You have three of them. You have the veil at the entrance. Well, you have the three veils, three screens separating each section. So first, you have the courtyard entrance where you would enter with this blue and purple and scarlet yarn uh, on, on these, these curtains. You would go through that screen and then you would have to pass through another screen 
in order to enter the tent itself. But that was only to enter into the first room, what is called the holy place. In order to enter into the most, most holy place, you would pass through the veil upon which is embroidered the cherubim. And this, of course, demonstrates that there is a movement into Eden as you move into the most holy place of the tabernacle. Or, in light of God's holiness, let me say it this way. As you move out from there, you're moving out from the heart of Eden. In other words, the people are moving from outside of Eden. As we read in the early chapters of Genesis, they are moving from east of Eden, the place of rebellion, the place of separation. They're moving from east of Eden towards Eden with the cherubim, with the dwelling place of God. This shows his Holiness. Thirdly, we have the graded holiness of the metals. This is a big theme that we looked at when we were talking about the details of the, of, of the tabernacle before. You have pure gold, level one, you could say. Level two is mere gold. Level three, silver. Level four, Bronze, And what we find is, as we move out from the core of these furniture items, and as we move out from the core of the holiest place, of the most holy place, we are moving out from God's throne room, moving away from pure gold to gold to silver to bronze. As you approach, you're moving from bronze to silver to gold to pure gold. This is the imagery of a king. This is the imagery of majesty. This is showing forth God's glory as the sovereign Lord of the covenant and the sovereign Lord of the whole universe. We see this this movement also with the ark. The ark is overlaid with pure gold, but the molding and the rings Around it are of gold. So even with the structures themselves, you get pure gold to gold. In the tent, it moves from silver to bronze bases. Bases at the entrance. Silver within. And when you look at the entire structure, we have gold for the furniture inside the tent and bronze for the furniture outside the tent. You have a bronze altar. You have a bronze basin. Those are outside of the tent. Inside of the tent, you have the ark and the mercy seat, the lampstand, the table, and the incense altar. All of those of gold. Everything outside is of bronze. Fourth, we see the plate on the high priest's forehead. And it says, as chapter 39, 30 says, the, it says, holy to the Lord. Once again, a reminder of God's holiness and therefore the holiness of the high priest who serves him in this very special place in this very special way. And then fifth, we see the need for washing and sacrificing in order to approach God. From the entrance all the way to the tent, you have to pass by the place of sacrifice The place where there were burnt offerings sent up to the Lord. Offerings for sin. And there is the basin, a reminder of the need for cleansing. The need for atoning and the need for cleansing. All of this denotes God's holiness. It declares loudly that God is the holy one. The unique one worthy of all the worship that will take place Day by day by day for centuries and centuries in this place until it would become a temple. All of this holiness, we need to note, centers on and points to the holy Christ. Now, we talked about that in great detail as we went through the various parts of the tabernacle, but it all points to the holy Christ. He is God's tabernacle. John chapter 1, verse 14, he became flesh and tabernacled among us. He tears the veil and opens up the way to God's presence through the veil of his flesh. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20. He is the propitiation or the mercy seat, the place of atonement. He is the bread of life, 
and the light of the world. He is the high priest, the altar, and the sacrifice. He is the door and the gate. And as he says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God apart from Christ. No one comes to the Father but by the Son. Just as no one moves to God but through this tabernacle structure. By means of the high priest, no one comes to God but through the veil of Christ's flesh, through his atoning blood, and through his high priestly work. It is the only way we can come to God. Religion will not save you. Jesus can save you. He's the only one. And all of this, as we think about the holiness of the tabernacle, comes to bear on us this morning as we consider Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. This is what Paul says. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The holy house of the holy God pointing to the Holy Christ, calls all Christians to a holy life. That's the takeaway for us. That's one of the takeaways. We adore the Christ who is the true tabernacle, and then we recognize that we are, by Christ, tabernacles as well. That the Holy Spirit of Christ dwells within us. That we have God in us. And because God is in us, we are to be a holy people. When we see this tabernacle, we should think holy life. Holy life. Purged of sin. Putting to death by the Spirit the deeds of the body. As Paul says in Romans 8 verse 13. Putting sin to death. We are purchased and we are indwelt. That is the great truth of the tabernacle applied to the Christian. Secondly, we see the obedient work. So we see the overarching holiness, massive all the way through. Now we see the obedient work. The most obvious feature of this flyover of the tabernacle is obedience. Israel's obedience in carrying out the work and submission to God's commands. This shows up in several places. So I want to go through and show you how this theme shows up in this section. First, there is so much verbatim repetition in this section. Much of what we read here repeats exactly what was given in the instructions section. And I went through this week and I looked uh, on my computer, I had two windows open. One was the instructions, one was the construction. And I went through every word of both and looked at the differences. And it is incredible how much verbatim material there is between the instructions and the construction. As you look at the details, so much verbatim. It repeats. The way that God commanded it is the way that it was built, period. Period. That's the message. Differences in the descriptions can be boiled down to word order, verb changes to account for the implementation of what was commanded, and the omission of more functional language that anticipates the service of the tabernacle with the priestly duties. This is an account of construction. But aside from those differences, we see so much the same. The order of the items is also different. The instructions went from inside to outside and from place to practice. They started with the core, with the ark, and moved out. And then we got, of course, the emphasis on the priests. And so some of the items, like the incense altar, weren't mentioned until we came to the priests. There was a movement from place to practice. Here, we get a more logical description that suits construction. The tent is considered first. Then the furniture of the tent moving outward, the ark with the mercy seat, the table, the lampstand, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering, as well as mention of the bronze basin, the court, and then the priestly 
garments. It's a much more logical flow. You get the whole thing, you go into it, you work your way out until you've come out to the court, and then you look at the priestly garments. But aside from these differences, what we have here is a repeat. And all of it is showing forth this theme, obedience. A second pointer to this obedience is we are reminded of the prior obedience with the contribution. So we get this materials list in chapter 38, verse 21 to 31. So for example, we read this in verse 24, all the gold that was used for the work in all the construction of the sanctuary The gold from the offering was 29 talents and 730 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. So just by way of example, this is over a ton of gold. This is over 2,000 pounds of gold. And it just reminds us of uh, the the contribution being so generous on behalf of the people that as as they gathered these things, as they brought these things, remember, it was abounding so that they had to say, turn it back, turn it back. We don't need anymore. Thank you, but no thank you. We don't need anymore. It was in excess. It was generous and it was lavish. And this points to the obedience of the people. A third way that Israel's obedience is emphasized is in the section on priestly garments. Given the significance of atonement, it is essential that the priestly garments be precisely as God commanded. So we are told throughout that section that this was the case, as the Lord had commanded Moses. So I don't want to just tell you this. I want you to see it. So go to chapter 39, and I want to trace this through with you. Look at the end of verse 1. As the Lord had commanded Moses. Then look down at the end of verse 5. As the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 7. As the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 21. As the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 26. As the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 29. As the Lord had commanded Moses. And verse 31. As the Lord had commanded Moses. Clearly, a focus on the obedience of the people by God's grace working in them through the renewal of the covenant. Then fourthly and finally, we get the end of this account. Chapter 39, verses 32 to 43. So I want to show you two sets of verses there. We're not going to read all of that. I want to read you two sets of verses. Verses 32 to 33. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. And the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses. And then scroll down to verse 42 to 43 or flip over to verses 42 to 43. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so had they done it. So here's, what I want us to see. And this is really a reiteration from last week. To belong to God, to be in covenant with God, is to obey His voice. It is to hear and heed God's Word. As I mentioned last week, I want to just point to you these two verses, which I think are so important for us as Christians as we think about the demands which Christ himself places on us as his disciples, as those who are born again by his spirit, washed in his blood, called to follow him, as he said to Peter in John 21, follow me, follow me. We read these words, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. What good is some sentimental love for Christ if he says do this and we do that? What good are tears rolling down the cheeks if Christ says do this and we do that? To love Jesus, to love Jesus is to listen to Jesus. Luke 6 verse 46 He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? The vanity, the taking of the Lord's name in vain 
to pray to him, Lord, and then to do as we please, apart from his word. Lord, Lord, and then we do as he commands. By his strength, by the Spirit, washed in his blood. I want to briefly come to these last two points here this morning. The overseeing leaders and the ongoing relationship. So first, the overseeing leaders. And here I just want to draw attention to what we read in chapter 38, verses 21 to 23. At the beginning of the section where the materials are tallied. So look at these verses, 21 to 23. These are the records of the tabernacle. The tabernacle of the testimony. As they were recorded at the commandment of Moses, the responsibility of the Levites under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord commanded Moses. And with him was Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer and embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. Moses, the Levites... Aaron's son, Ithamar, Bezalel, Aholiab, these are leaders. These are leaders mentioned. From the mediator, Moses, to the master craftsman, Bezalel and Aholiab, to Ithamar, the bookkeeping priest-to-be, the tribe of Levi in general. These are the means that God used to bring this project to completion. And I wanted to draw attention to this simply to highlight the need for leadership. This is clear in this section. The need for leadership. The obedience of Israel as a whole is couched within the context of obedient oversight. Leaders who lead based on the word of God. You know, I was thinking God for the gift of leaders yesterday as I heard our brothers Daniel and Trey speak on family worship. Their clarity and conviction, their attentiveness to God's word, their pastoral love for the sheep. God's people need leaders. And that's what we saw yesterday. Some of the leaders here at Four Corners serving God's people. And what a responsibility we as leaders have in carrying out God's purposes according to God's word. We have no right to make it up as we go. We have no right to invent through our own ingenuity. We must follow and obey God's Word. Where the leaders fail to obey, the people will follow. And so we see here, couched within this mass obedience, are these obedient leaders, whether they be Moses or the craftsmen who are overseeing the work. Finally, our fourth and final point this morning is the ongoing relationship. I want to end with the final verse of chapter 39. Verse 43, and Moses saw all the work and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. So they, so had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. By the way, we are meant to see a connection between obedience and blessing. Now, some pervert this and and the, the prosperity gospel perverts this. And so if you, if you do this or that, you're going to have, you know, a large house and, and a luxury vehicle, and uh, more vacations, and you won't get the sniffles, or at least you won't get cancer, or if you get cancer, it'll go away, whatever, right? That's rubbish. We know that we must face all kinds of hardships and trials in this life, but nonetheless, we know throughout Scripture that there is a link, an intrinsic relationship between obedience and blessing, To walk in God's word is to be blessed. It is to experience his blessings. However, he wisely dispenses those spiritually, relationally, materially, whatever. That obedience and blessing are connected. 
and therefore disobedience and non-blessing or cursing, disobedience. These things are also related. This word blessed opens up a wealth of riches for us. It points back to Eden in the context of the completion of creation, God's cosmic house. There is a parallel between verse 32, which begins this final section, and chapter 2, verse 1. So if you go back to verse 32, you'll read this. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. And when you read that, you think, oh, that sounds familiar. And then you go back to Genesis 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. So in other words, with the completion of the tabernacle... You have this, uh, this going back to Eden, not just in the way that it's structured, but even in the language of its completion. And what was Eden like? Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And God blessed them. Here we have the blessedness that the Lord dispenses post-fall in his presence here at the tabernacle. And in pointing back to Eden, it points forward to presence. It points deep out into the future. All the way to our day and beyond. It points to the incarnation, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and the sure and certain inheritance that we have in God's holy presence. For those of us who have come to be God's tabernacle, For those of us who have come to trust in God's tabernacle, who is Christ. And for those of us through Christ who have become tabernacles of the living God, we read this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The heavenly places. This relationship that God has with his people will continue. That's what Moses' blessing says to the people. That God is going to be with us and we will live in his presence. And how much we praise God this morning that we dwell in God's presence as, as new creations through Christ. That we have the Holy Spirit and that we look forward to a day when we will dwell with God perfectly in a new heaven and a new earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these chapters and this opportunity to go through them on a a high level, going through them as a flyover, Lord, to, to look at them as one whole unit. It really is a blessing. And God, I, I pray that It will stick in our minds as we leave here today and that the holiness that it calls us to, the worship that it calls us to, the obedience and the great hope. Lord, I pray that we would be filled up in our souls as we leave here today with a desire to trust you and obey you and to relate to you in intimate fellowship through the Lord Jesus Christ our high priest, and the sacrifice for our sins. We pray all this in his name. Amen. At this time in our service, we'll have the Lord's Supper. So if you'll be, partake, if you'll be serving, let me go ahead and get you to come forward. The servers have to come before the partakers. So I want to read to you Jesus' Passover Uh, final Passover with his disciples, which is also the institution of the Lord's Supper. And we get this in Luke 22, verses 14 to 20, as we prepare our hearts to receive uh, this, this communion supper. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So we come forward this morning with a glorious Christ and a glorious hope. And I pray that that fills your heart this morning as you come forward, that you have this joy in Christ, but also a soberness and a reverence knowing that we come before a holy God, not to be trifled with, not to be treated as a common thing, but to be bowed to as the holy king. And let me just say this morning,